week we're going to talk about the importance of knowing that Jesus is coming back a second time. Why it's important, what it means, and how we find joy and love in it. Uh, So if you'll read with me, Matthew 24, 1-14. Jesus foretells destruction of the temple. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out... I'm sorry, yes. Please stand as we read. Um, We honor God by standing when his word is read. Um, If you are unable to stand... Feel free to stay seated. But Matthew 24, 1-14. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these. Do you not? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Signs of the end of the age. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear the wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony of all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. God, your your holiness and your purity demands the same of those who are in your presence. uh, Today we're going to speak of uh, your coming in judgment a second time. I pray that you'll help us to find joy and peace in that. May we find uh, your work in the destruction of the temple, of Jerusalem, of this world, May we find your plan for humanity in it. And may we love it and understand it and grasp it and find rest in it. Pray that you will uh, speak to us today, Lord, about our temples, about our cities, and where we we find and seek our rest, our peace. May we uh, long for your return correctly. May we be changed because of the knowledge of your return. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, There's a part of all of us that really longs to know the future, that really desires to know what's coming our way. And this is the question that the disciples put before Christ. Um, So the first three verses we begin uh, with Jesus and the the, uh, disciples leaving the temple, and the disciples um, were wanting to share with Jesus or to talk to Jesus about the glory, the beauty of the temple, the amazing building that was this temple. And it was truly an amazing building. Um, We're talking about stones, a part of the foundation that were hundreds of tons, huge stones. Um, the average stone was something like 30 tons or, or so, big or weight-wise, giant. It was also beautiful. It was adorned with gold and had large marble columns. It was a beautiful place. It was an important place 
And the disciples were wanting to talk about its greatness. And of course, Jesus then tells them in verse 2, Do you see its greatness? Not a single stone will be left on top of another stone. Its greatness will be destroyed. There will be nothing left of it. This was a big deal, a huge deal um, to the disciples. And so they interpreted it as not just the destruction of the temple, but they then, of course, in verse 3, asked the question, Uh, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. What they mean by the end of the age is ultimately the end of the world, the end of earth, or at least in their view, the end of their kingdom, or perhaps for some, the end of the Roman Empire. But for these four disciples that were with Jesus at this time, They were seeing it as the end of all. And Jesus, that is certainly what he meant when he said it. And so, for us, that would be an important question for us to know, right? For us, we fear a lot of things. Sometimes it's a fear of what is to come. And sometimes we're so dependent upon knowing what is to come because of what we fear right now. Um, Some of you know me pretty well. You know a few things about me. Um, One of which is I tend not to be very emotional, especially when I'm speaking, which you guys all really appreciate. Um, And I uh, tend not to be too emotional in in my life in general. Um, Part of this is because of how God made me. Part of this is because of how I trained myself. And part of this is because um, how I try to hide some of my inadequacies. Um, So uh, I think God very much made me pretty laid back. Um, I also think that in my relationship with God, I've come to accept a lot of things about me that I should accept. Um, And then I think that um, for me growing up, uh, my first love, my first salvation was baseball. I loved playing baseball. My whole childhood was dedicated to one day playing professional baseball, being in the major leagues. It was my goal in my, in my life, my singular goal. I would come home from kindergarten and go in the backyard with my dad, and I would hit hundreds of baseballs, and we would play catch. I started running a mile a day when I was 11, started working out, actually not running a mile a day when I was nine, which was four times up and down my street. Um, so it was about a quarter mile street, uh, my street was. started working out at nine, which is probably why I'm so short at this point in my life. <laughs> um, but uh, I set up, uh, at one point I, I nailed a heavy blanket around this one open doorway that's about and a four feet by six feet in my basement. And I set up a little uh, machine that would like soft toss balls to me, and I would hit it against a blank in the winter. If I couldn't go outside, I would hit balls against this blanket. My parents hated it because I was literally using an aluminum bat with a real baseball, so it made a lot of noise. But <laughs> it was what I wanted to do because baseball was my love. It was my salvation. Now, one of the things about baseball that's different than a lot of the other uh, main American sports is it's a very much uh, more skill-oriented than perhaps some of the others. And so emotion needs to be controlled a little more than it would in football or basketball. If you go up to the plate trying to hit a fastball or a curveball that's moving all over the place and just swing as hard as you can, you're not going to hit it very often. Um, you need to be under control. You need to be very focused on your skill and to swing and focus on your technique and swing within the technique as hard as you can. But you can't just go up and be angry and be emotional and be all amped up and just rip it and swing as hard as you can because you'll never hit it. And so I worked very hard in controlling my emotions on, in, the, in the game, and it became a part of me um, because that's just what I did. Um, 
I remember in middle school starting to write left-handed because I wanted to be a switcher, so I wanted to add um, dexterity to my left hand just to be able to do better in baseball. Baseball was so consuming as a part of my life. If anything translated to the game itself, it became something that became a part of my life because I needed to do it well. And so emotion was something that I always trained myself to control. One of the other things that you know about me is I have has been approximately, I don't know, 16 years now since I last pursued a relationship, uh, uh, more than friendship. Um, and uh, what you might not know is uh, in those 16 years, there has been two, probably two females that I had a legitimate like, crush on, and maybe one other that uh, I contemplated contemplating, like, <laughs> at one point. Um, and so, uh, but one of the things about me is, deep within myself, I recognize this, this inadequacy, this desire to be worthy, of, of, of be of worth, and how I don't fulfill that, how I'm, I'm so, there's a shame about me, there's a, a longing within me to be better than what I am. And uh, so what that plays out with in this uh, scenario is I would have never pursued any of those women until I was certain that if I were to say, hey, do you want to be in a relationship with me? Um, that they were going to say yes. Because it would have hurt me if they didn't. And I don't want people to think that I'm emotional. I don't want people to think that I can be hurt. And so I needed to know the future before I would have taken a step to pursue that. Knowing the future, just as it was for them, for us, is so much a part of how we deal with our fears, how we deal with our, 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 our guilts or our shames or our uh, sorrows or our pain, um, for them it was sort of more so, hey, we're living in a time of pain and we would like to know when it ends. This is how a lot of us would like to deal with our pain, right? It would be great if God gave us a time frame. You're going to hurt from next Wednesday until May 23rd. And then after that, everything is going to be great, right? It's easier to deal with then, right? I know when my pain is coming. I know when it will be over. And so I can deal with it a little bit better because I see the end point coming. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this uh, in his book, great book, The Problem of Pain. I once read the sentence, I lay awake all night with a toothache, thinking about the toothache and about lying awake. That's true to life. Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection the fact that you don't merely suffer, but have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. Right? When you don't know when it's going to end, all you know is the grief. And you not only are dealing with the grief, but you're dealing with the knowledge of each day the grief is there. Every moment is consumed by the sorrow, by the grief. And that's why we so long to know the future. We so long to know when the pain will end, when the circumstances will change. Um, We so long to know what the answer will be, what will I get, what what won't I get. Because the pain of our lives is real. It's real for a variety of reasons. But it's real. We all live in this bit of pain. Another thing about me and my emotional failures is uh, one of the things I've I've really missed since moving back home is some intimacy in some of my relationships. But yet, at the same time, due to wanting to hide my shame, not wanting to be vulnerable, I don't make myself available to be intimate a lot. If I knew what would result from those relationships, it would be easier to go forward into them. If I knew what me being vulnerable 
with certain people would result in, it would be easier to be vulnerable. But because of my fear, I don't trust people, I don't trust myself to be vulnerable. And so, there's within all of us this deep longing for a knowledge of the future, for a knowledge of, for two very different reasons. One, because, you know, it just helps us deal with the pain, and two, because the fear of the unknown. What we do know is that we live in a state of sorrow, we live in a state of fear. What we don't know all the time is the solution. And part of the second coming deals with that. Uh, One of the interesting things about our desire to be loved, which is how we, in a lot of ways, attempt to deal with our pain, is it's very contradictory. We desire two types, uh, or two ways that we want to be loved, and they totally contradict each other. We desire both to be loved unconditionally, without merit, and we desire to be lo- desired to be loved because of our merit. We want people to love us because of how worthy we are to be loved, but at the same time, we want to know that no matter how worthy I am, they'll always love me. I want to perform, I want to live, I want to love, I want to be such and such to you, that you'll love me, but I also want you to love me no matter how I live, no matter how much I love you, no matter how well I treat you. Part of that is because of our our relationship with God. It's born out of the weakness of our relationship with God. The second coming addresses our fear and our longing for the future, and it addresses this longing for that contradiction in love. We're going to talk about how, but we've got to do some work to get there. Um, it has a lot to do with temples, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the temple today and the destruction of it and what it means for us, and then ultimately the city of Jerusalem and the world as a whole. But... Uh, first off, how do we get to needing temples? What was God's design for life? Where did it go wrong? How do we end up with temples, and what do temples mean? Genesis, uh, or Tim Keller writes this, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Paradise. Why is the Garden of Eden paradise? Because the presence of God was there. The absolute, immediate presence of God. And the presence of God's overwhelming beauty, power, glory, and holiness. In the presence of his absolute and utter aliveness, nothing dead, nothing diseased, nothing broken, nothing evil, nothing twisted can exist. That is why it was paradise, because the presence of God was there. It was beautiful. It was awesome. It was glorious. It was joyful. It was peaceful. It was restful. It was what we always longed for, even though if we don't realize it. But there was a problem. Genesis 3, 23 through 24 tells us that after Adam and Eve ate of the tree they were told not to eat of, God says this, or does this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away and that turned every turned away sorry, the sword that turned every every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So one of the curses of the fall was that man would not live, but there was a tree that if you ate of it, you would live forever. And Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and this one tree was protected, especially this tree that would give them eternal life. And there's a a very good reason for this protection. First is it was a curse, part of the fall, so God is making sure his curse stands. But it's a curse... And in Christ, we'll see later, becomes a blessing to us. As long as 
the same as the destruction of the temple and ultimately the destruction of life. But we have some more work to get to there. But this is what we need to know. We're separated from God's presence now at this point. And what comes about is our loss of Eden, our loss of the garden, our loss of the life we've always longed for. And we're left longing, and we're left looking. And this is why we are afraid. Because we have this deep longing in ourselves, and we're looking, but we're uncertain of where to find it. And yeah, we give ourselves to certain things, but we're always afraid that it'll let us down, even if it's God. We're always afraid. The things we give, us to, or give, our, give ourselves to will let us down. And so we live in this state of fear. And it would be great to know the future. Yes, this is the correct path. Yes, this is the incorrect path. It'd be great to know that I am worthy of being loved. And it would be great to know that you'll be loved unconditionally. These are things that we long for. It would be great to know that for certain. And God tries to tell us that, and he tries to reassure us that, but one of the best ways he does so is in the second coming. But God does a lot of work to get us there, and the first is establishing a temple. He establishes a covenant with Israel through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, so on and so forth. Um, Through the Davidic line, we've talked about this idea of Christ being the son of David the past month or so. Um, not that Christ is just another human being, but that a Messiah came out of the line of David because we needed something greater than this earth. We needed something greater than just another human leader. And we'll see why. Because another human being cannot simply destroy the temple. Another human being cannot destroy this world the way it needs to be done. But... Part of the covenant is the establishment of this temple. And within the temple, what happens is, is God sets up some rituals of sacrifice that Israel uses to establish or reestablish their covenant with God. So the temple is very important. And in Matthew uh, twenty six sixty one at Jesus' trial, These words are brought up that Jesus used when he talked about the destruction of the temple. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. In Matthew 27, as he's on the cross, someone else says to him, You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. To talk about the destruction of the temple to Israel was a big deal because their covenant with God was based upon some of the actions that took place inside the temple. Because in the temple is where God's presence, his Shekinah glory, as it's called in the Old Testament, um, rested. And what would happen is, they would go to the temple and they would make sacrifices, but most especially there was one day a year when the high priest would spend a week in preparation of making himself pure and holy to go in to the presence of the Shekinah glory and make a sacrifice for all of Israel. Why did he spend so much time? Because the Shekinah glory was no joke. It was a big deal to be in the presence of God. Tim Keller, uh, when he talks about Jesus coming back the second time, talks about the Shekinah glory in this way. This is what he says. Jesus Christ comes back. He's bringing the glory cloud. He's bringing the Shekinah. He's bringing the presence of God to envelop the entire world and make it the Garden of Eden again. The whole world, all perfected, all beautified, end of death, end of disease, end of hunger, end of poverty, end of injustice, end of violence. In the day it looked like a cloud. At night it was a fiery glory. There's even a Hebrew word for it, the Shekinah, the cloud of glory, the radiance, the brilliance, and the immediate presence of God, in whose presence nothing dead, nothing diseased, nothing imperfect, nothing evil, nothing twisted can exist. Understand that if you went before the presence of God, if you went before the Shekinah glory in an unworthy manner, you cannot exist. You would die. 
This is why we were kicked out of God's garden. This is why we cannot enter the temple in some happenstance way. We can't just walk in to God's presence. We can't just go up to God unworthy and expect to live. God's holiness and purity demands that he only is in the presence of other pure and holy things. So the, the, holy, the high priest would go through this week-long preparation. He would recite verses from the Old Testament um, over and over again. He would spend many of nights in prayer. They would wash his garments numerous times. They would wash, he would wash himself numerous times. The whole point was he needed to make this sacrifice to God for Israel to remain in covenant with God. And that's what temples were uh, before our modern times. Temples were, most people before uh, the modern era believed in the existence of some transcendent being, some mystical being. But they also believed that there, believed there was some separation between that transcendent being and us. And so all kinds of people made all kinds of different temples. And within those temples, they performed all kinds of different rituals, all kinds of different prayers, all kinds of different sacrifices to try to appease that God. And for Israel, the sacrifices were necessary because they believed that our sin had separated them from God. And we needed to make an atonement, to make a sacrifice, to make ourselves Um, pure before God in order to enter his presence to even make that sacrifice. And so the high priest spent all that time and then he would go before uh, the Shekinah glory, still sort of blocked. There was a curtain there that would stop anybody from seeing or being in the presence of the glory. The high priest would go in and he would be sort of, there would be a cloud of incense that would sort of cover him a little bit and some other things. Um, But he would go before the Shekinah and he would make sacrifice for all of Israel. But the point of Jesus is, the point of the temple is, to point us to the fact that we need more than a temple, like we just talked about. We need more than human sacrifices. We need more than human rituals. We need more than human prayers. We need Jesus to become the temple. And to be our bridge, which he does. But before we get there, understand that the temple was important. And that's why when Jesus says he's going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days, it was a big deal. This was Israel's way of remaining in relationship with God. And someone comes along and says, I'm going to end your way of being in a relationship with God. And I'm, then I'm going to rebuild it in three days. First off, who are you to end that? And second off, how are you going to rebuild it? It's a giant temple. Huge. It took many years to build to great feats of strength and technology by many men to build. Loads of money, and here are you, some carpenter alone, and you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days by yourself. Seemed pretty inconceivable, and it seemed pretty offensive. But of course, in Christ, it becomes glory and joy. Because Christ knew what we needed. And it wasn't what we thought. And so he becomes our temple for us. And he makes the sacrifice that needed to be made so that we can be in a relationship with him. And he makes the temple basically irrelevant at this point. When Christ dies on the cross, there's this great quake of the earth and the curtain that separated the Shekinah glory from the rest of the temple tore in half. Why? Because of Christ's sacrifice, Christ making us pure. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, 
so that we can become holy through his sacrifice. We're made holy. God sees us as pure. So we don't need to hide ourselves from the presence of God any longer. The presence of God is made readily available to us. And with that comes the benefits. Keller writes, when Jesus comes back, he's bringing the cloud of glory. He's bringing the Shekinah. He's bringing the presence of God to envelop the entire world and make it the Garden of Eden again. The whole world, all perfected, all beautified. End of death, end of disease, end of hunger, end of poverty, end of injustice, end of violence. Back to the Garden. Do you not long for that? But the problem is, he's coming back a second time too. And when he comes back the second time, it's a judgment. It's a problem. Because, like I was talking about earlier, deep within myself and deep within all of you, we know we're unworthy. And of Christ, we, we talked about how Christ made a difference that way. But if you still are struggling with whether you're unworthy or not, Francis Safer used to uh, have this little mind game. And he basically said, imagine if God had placed an invisible tape recorder or audio recorder on your body somewhere. And it recorded only the times when you said to someone else, here's how you should live. Here's what you should do. So whenever you said you ought or you should, it clicked on and it recorded what you were about to say. Imagine then, you go before God at judgment and God says to you, look, I'm not judging you by the Ten Commandments, by the law, by any law written on your heart. What I'm going to judge you on is I'm going to play this recorder and all the things you told someone else you ought to do or you should do, if you did those things, you're in. If you didn't, you're out. How many of you passed the test? We don't even live up to our own standards. That's why we needed Christ. We can talk about the need for temples. We can talk about the need for sacrifices. We can even do it sometimes. But we know we don't do it as much as we should. We always fail to live up to our own standards. That's why we needed more than a human temple. We needed a son of David, a Messiah to come, to be our temple, to be our sacrifice, to establish a relationship with us, not for us to establish a relationship with him. And then we come to the second. This is where the beauty of it comes in. The Heidelberg Confession, uh, or I'm sorry, the Heidelberg Catechism is a, one of the famous Reformed creeds. It's a great piece of writing. It's a lot rather long, but it's good stuff. I'm going to read two of you, two of them to you. It's a, basically, it goes uh, in sort of like the, uh, there'll be a question and then an answer. So you'll see two questions and then an answer. Um, there are numerous questions. We're going to read 42 and 43. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. What further benefits do we receive in Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By Christ's power, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of our flesh may no longer rule us but that instead we may offer ourselves as sacrifices of gratitude to him. See, Christ guarded the tree in the garden, the tree of life, because if we eat the tree of life before the second coming, we never die from our sin-stained bodies. We're eternally stuck in a body stained of sin. We cannot die of this body and be given a new body, a glorified body. The temple is destroyed. 
Because if the temple's not destroyed, we'll always fail in making enough sacrifices and doing the prayers and the rituals enough. We'll fail in doing it for the right reasons. And we'll never make ourselves right with God. This sin-stained world is destroyed because without it, there cannot be a new world and a new heaven. You want to live in the Garden of Eden? Your sin-stained body needs to be destroyed and you need to be given a new body. You want to live in the Garden? Those people who do not submit to God... Those people who were just like us before Christ came, selfish and evil, need to be separated from you. You would never live in a place without sin unless God separates those whose sin-stained bodies have been destroyed and those who are separated from us who have not given themselves to God. You always live in pain. Until you are, this world is destroyed and you're placed in your new home and your new body. The benefit of the second coming is, is that. The second judgment is the destruction of sin. And the joy is that you will be made new. All of your selfishness, all of your longings for beautiful temples, or other things in this world will be destroyed with it. You'll long only for God. And because of that, you'll also long for his people, and you'll love his people. The garden is a place of perfect love, of perfect beauty, perfect joy, but it can only be so unless we and this world are destroyed and we're given a new body and a new home. The second coming seems harsh, but without it, there is no promise to be fulfilled of heaven and a new earth. Romans 8, 22 through 25 reads, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now only the creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We so want to see it. We so want to see the future. But God says, wait patiently. I promise you I'm coming. We're not always going to see it, but it is a promise. And it's a promise because of the second coming, the judgment, and the destruction. Philippians 3, 20 uh, and 21 reads, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the crux of the matter we need to ask ourselves. It's not, what will the future be? But it's, do we believe? From what we know of the past and the present, that Christ has the power to make all things subject to himself. Do you believe that Christ is a part of the triune God that created everything? Do you believe that Christ came and died for you? Do you believe that he is willing and has the power to destroy all evil and make you new and make a new heaven and a new earth? Um, Matthew 24 is important because of that. Because Matthew 24 is Jesus saying, here's what's going to happen. We're going to talk about this more next week. And again, judge me by my miracles. Am I right? 
If you see me do miraculous things, and if you see me prophesy about things that are going to happen in the future, then know me for who I am. I'm God. And if I'm God, and if I tell you that I died for your sins, your sins are paid for. And if I tell you I'm coming back, and I'm going to kill your sin-sane self and make you new, make you completely pure and holy, and place you in a new home where there's nothing but joy and peace and rest and beauty, then you can rest in that. You might not know when it's coming, but you know it's coming. Um, Keller writes this. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits himself or herself to you wholly, it's a, con- it's a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. God knows us. And that last part is true because he knows what our longings are. Because our longings were created by him, given to us by him. He knows that we need to be loved unconditionally. And he knows because we know we're unworthy, we're always going to desire to make ourselves worthy. The beauty of the second coming is you will be made worthy. That is the promise. Your sin saint stuff will die. The things that you long for in this world to find your joy and your peace and your rest, that God says will be destroyed, will be. And you will be given, you will be placed in the reality of your longings. And your longings will become only Christ. And all of a sudden, your actions will be worthy. It's not what made you worthy. Christ makes you worthy. But all of a sudden, you're going to do the things you were created to do. And God will know it. And you will become something of value, something of worth. Now, that begins before the second coming as well. We're given the Holy Spirit to make us people of value to this world, to make us something worthy or of worth to this world. The question is, what do we consider valuable and worthy? The promise of the second coming, the promise of salvation, and the promise of the Holy Spirit is that God knows you need to be loved unconditionally. You can never make yourself valuable or worthy enough. You will always be seen by God the way the high priest is seen in Zechariah. Zechariah tells a prophecy, uh, or tells of a dream that he experienced when the high priest uh, Joshua goes before God to enter the gates into the Shekinah glory, to make his offering for Israel. And God looks down upon the high priest and he sees him covered in dung and feces. That will be what you always will be. But God loves you anyways. And he's going to save you from that. And he's going to make you someone who is of value and is of worth. God knows our longings. And the promise of the second coming is the meeting of those longings, those that we've specifically talked about. We can stop hiding our worthlessness because by hiding it, we get nowhere. Only by admitting it and giving it to God do we get the promise of being made righteous and made pure and holy. We can stop being in fear of our worthlessness being shown to the world. Because only in the world, knowing that we were once worthless, but now are secure in our worth in God, will they see the difference. 
only in our pain, only in our weaknesses, will they know that we're like them, but made different through Christ. Because our worthlessness is no longer a weight. It is a joy. Because it pointed me to God, and God is going to redeem me in it. We're not weighed down by it. We shouldn't be anyways. I still am. Some of you still are. It's a struggle. But that's the reality of the Christian walk. But the promise again of the second coming is it won't be someday. Rest in God's work and in God's love. One of the interesting things about the the passage that we read for us urbanites is um, do we read it or do we not? We might not have read it. Let me see one second. I think it's later and actually 24, but um, yeah, it actually probably starts in verse 15. You have your Bibles. Turn to twenty-four, fifteen. Um, verse fifteen and sixteen reads: So when you see an abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's what they're in: the city. The city is surrounded by walls, fortified for its protection. They're where, throughout the Old Testament, people went to seek safety. And of course, in a uh, modern context, we don't build walls very much anymore for safety, but at then that point it was necessary. The abomination of desolation speaking, is speaking of the temple. And what he's saying to his followers is, when you see basically Rome come in and desecrate the temple, at that point, you need to know, you need to run. You need to flee the city. You need to get out of the city and go to the mountains. For most of us, the opposite would be true. Us urbanites, we tend to come to the city to seek safety. We tend to come to the city to seek our hope and our joy. That would be the same as that at that time. And what God is saying is, You need to give up your temples. You need to give up your idols. There's going to be times when what I ask you to do in order to comfort you makes little sense. I'm going to ask you to leave the city at times. And ultimately, what God says is he's going to destroy the city. One of my favorite songs is a song called Hurricane by Jimmy Needham. And he writes this. I have built a city here, half with pride, half with fear. Just wanted a safer place to hide. I don't want to be safe tonight. I need you like a hurricane. Thunder crashing, wind and rain. Tear down my walls. I'm only yours now. I need you like a burning flame, a wildfire untamed. To burn these walls down, I'm only yours now. I'm only yours now. I am yours, and you are not are mine. You know far better than I. And if destruction's what I need, then I'll receive it, Lord, from thee. Yes, I'll receive it, Lord, from thee. Destruction's what we need. That's what the second coming is about. You have the Holy Spirit in you today. Take some time to ask him what needs to be destroyed in your life. For me, it's very much the idea of being in a large city and accomplishing something great. It's very much uh, being seen as not inadequate in any way. It's very much hiding some vulnerabilities in my life. And I need to give those to God. What are your temples? What are your idols? What are your cities? What are the things you long for? that you think are going to give you rest and peace and joy? What are the things that you're hiding your true self in? Ask the Holy Spirit to destroy those in you today so that you can be the Christian 
that God wants you to be. The one who's not serving yourself and longing for yourself and seeking yourself, but who is giving yourself to other people so that God can use you in their lives and make you of worth like you've always longed for. Let's pray. God, destruction is what we need. Help us to see it and find joy in it. Help us to know you in it. Speak to us about the parts of our life that we need to destroy today. Lord, in the freedom that comes with that destruction, help us to know how we can serve you in those areas we used to give to that thing. Help us to understand your promises in a way that changes us totally. Holy Spirit, do your work. Burn what needs to be burned. Knock over the walls that need to be knocked over in our lives. Father, make us... uh, people of worth. Not because of us, but because of what you do through us. Help us to give ourselves to you so that you can add value to this city through us. So that you can comfort those who are struggling and hurting. Help us to be a church that seeks you and not the things of this city. Again, Lord, destroy what needs to be destroyed. In your name we pray. Amen.